David, a man after God's own heart, part 13. And the title of our message this morning, Rejoice and Tremble, from 2 Samuel chapter 6. So in our series last week, um, we saw how David had reached the top. He has been proclaimed king over all of Israel. He has taken Jerusalem, a neutral high place, and made it the political capital of his kingdom. All that remained was to place the ark in the tabernacle that he would erect on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And then he, was able, he would be able to declare uh, Jerusalem, not just the political, but also the, the religious centre of the nation. But one important element was missing, the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't there. So let's talk a little bit about the Ark and and a little bit, let's give a bit of a background. First of all, its significance. The Ark was the first thing that God told Moses to build. It was a small box, about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep, made of wood and overlaid with pure gold. Inside, it consisted, the contents were the golden pot of manna, the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and Aaron's rod. And the people who were assigned to to carry the ark were the Levites. What was the purpose? Well, its purpose was to be a blessing. The ark was was a focal point, a, a meeting place for God and his people. But above all else, the ark was God's sanctuary and the ultimate symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people. But something happened. There was decadence. And what happened to the ark was, was, I suppose, symbolic of the spiritual condition of the nation. Over the years, there was a sad decline in Israel's spiritual life. During a battle, Israel was soundly defeated and 4,000 men died. So the elders thought it would be a clever thing to take the ark into battle. Instead, they lost the battle and the ark to the Philistines. Now, losing the ark of the covenant was, I suppose, one of, one of the hardest blows that had ever fallen upon the nation of Israel. And after its capture by the Philistines, they, the Philistines, kept it for seven months. But rather than being a blessing to them, it was a curse to them. And because wherever the ark went, it caused disease and destruction. So they moved it around from place to place until they, the Philistines were only too happy to, to return it to the Israelites and some time back we spoke about that episode in a message. And from that moment on it was kept in the house of a fellow named Abinadab for a number of years, in fact decades. I suppose part of the lesson with that is that it's it's not easy to live with God in our midst. Very hard for mortal sinful man to live with the all-powerful, almighty, holy God. We don't want God to meddle 
in our affairs. We don't want him to get close to us. We think, well, don't call us. We will call on you and invite you. But it has to be on on our terms, we think. Because, you know, we, we don't want God to intrude into every aspect of our lives, can we? This is why many are comfortable with a time and a place where you and I can can meet God at church on Sundays. Someone has said we cannot live with him and we cannot live without him. And even King David struggled with this issue and the people along with him. So this morning... We're going to look at different reactions and emotions that are there when we are confronted with God's presence or accept the reality that God is here, whether it's in the homes, in the streets, and for the Israelites, in the tabernacle, God's presence was terrifying. So how do humans react when God turns up? First of all, there is celebration, verses 1 to 5. Celebration. And it says here uh, in verse 1 and 2, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. And then following verse uh, later on, it says, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles and cymbals. Make no mistake, this was a big event. Obviously there was a lot of planning going on. It was an occasion of great joy for the nation of Israel. Its enemies had been conquered. The anointed king is on the throne And now the ark bearing the law of God is going to be brought to the place prepared for it in the city of David. It was to be a religious spectacular. All the tribes from the whole nation, they were going to gather, walk for miles, days to come to this big event. And David called 30,000 young men to take part. This was a big thing. Not in battle, he didn't call these young men to go into battle, but in a celebration. There were singers and dancers and fireworks and jumping castles and all that. A grand carnival, a procession in which the ark would be transported in triumph. Massive party. All sorts of musical instruments and singers participating. Looks like David, being a musical person, loved to party. And he planned to do it in a big way. There was no holding back. There's an important lesson here, isn't there? That the presence of God in our midst demands that we celebrate the event. We rejoice in it. When people are enthused about their God, it will show in their worship. We show enthusiasm when we go to the footy and watch a game. And yet when we come to church, sometimes we hold back because, no, this is, we have to be prim and proper. But you know what? You read the Psalms, and David wrote so many of them, and they're full of joy and praise to God. There was a song in his heart, 
And that song had to come out. So he kept on singing a new song to the Lord and he wrote, which this was part of our first reading in Psalm 68 verses 3 and 4. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. The worship of God is not a sad funeral. Yes, I have been to many, many funerals and some of them you actually celebrate the life because this person belonged to the Lord. It is a celebration of life. But the worship of God is not a sad funeral. It is, in fact, a joyous celebration. But that doesn't mean that we are allowed to cross the line, to go too far. And this is something that David and Israel found out the hard way. And it should also serve as a warning to us as well. So in verses 6 to 7, we have irreverence. There is irreverence. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So unfortunately, despite all the preparation... The joy, the celebration was short-lived. As they were were crossing some rough road, the oxen stumbled and shook the ark. And as it was falling, uh, Uzzah, who was walking beside it, he reached out to steady the ark and God struck him dead. There are a few issues to consider here. As, as to why it happened. If you were there, just consider that it was in the midst of a party mood. And what happened is that they lost the awe and the reverence that they should have had for the holiness of God. God had given Israel specific instructions for how to handle that which was holy. The things set apart for worshipping him. There were many instructions on this. Numbers chapter 4, for example, is one of the chapters. The ark was as holy as it gets. Anyone who touched it would die because they would approach it carelessly. And they had the privilege of drawing near to God, holy God, but his presence, his holiness, is, is, is too overwhelming for them. This is why it needed to be done in a specific, careful way. Now, the ark had remained out of circulation for many, many years. It was out of use. It was in the home of Abinadab for many years. And unfortunately, over over that period of time, they had forgotten the clear instructions that God had set in the law for the transportation of the ark. It was to be carried by hand and not by cart. And it had to be carried with the poles. So the priests would 
transport, so they could transport the ark without touch, touching the ark itself. And the reason they carried it on a cart was because of convenience, practical reasons. And, and what is disturbing is that the Philistines had done it in the same way. It doesn't matter the fact that it was a new cart. It, that wasn't the way that God had told them to do it. But more than that, the ark had been stored at the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah was actually one of his sons. So just think, think about this, that Uzzah had the Ark of the Covenant there in his house. He grew up with it. He was overly, he became overly familiar with the Ark. The Ark was at home. He could see it every day. He simply started to take it for granted. The saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Now when we begin to take God and his commands and his presence for granted, we are actually well on the way to sacrilege, to cross the line without doing things without consideration. You see, it is one thing to sing what a friend we have in Jesus but it is quite another to see him as your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. That is crossing the line. There is fear. Our next heading, there is fear, verses 8 to 9. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David is, is, is first angered at the death of Uzzah. And, and I suppose he's, he's angered because people had come all this way. It was a big thing, so much preparation, so much emotion spent already looking forward to this wonderful occasion. But his anger quickly turned to fear and trepidation. In fact, it was more of a, like, a, like a frustration of not knowing why things went wrong in the midst of a happy occasion to honour God. Yet the very reason they did all of that was because of God and God decides to spoil the party. Everybody had to go home. They had to stop everything. And David's anger is not said to be directly against the Lord, but because of what the Lord had done. It was the Lord's action. You see, David had been glad of the Lord's terrifying power when the Lord's anger was directed against the Israelites' enemies. You know, the Philistines, when God destroys the Philistines. But suddenly... It's more troubling when the Lord's anger, terrifying power, came out against his very own people. It's okay for God to be angry about it against everybody else, but please don't direct your anger towards us. But in fact, that's the history of the people of God tells you that this happened time and time again. Now, as soon as David realised that his way was not God's way, his attitude started to change. 
death, you see, has a tendency to do this. Confronted by the awesomeness of God, David began to to have a healthy fear. And it's a well-founded fear of the holiness of God. And because there was a problem of attitude and it needed to be corrected because the way that David behaved, he set the example for the tone of the rest of the nation. And God wants to be near. He wants to bless his people. But the only way this could happen was for men to approach him in the way that he prescribed. And this is what David wrote in Psalm 40, in verse 3, he said, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put the trust in the Lord. See and fear. So we see how God in the Bible, we, we find truth, we find fearfulness and gladness, it's all thrown in the mix. It's all held together. So we need to have a a, a fearful sense of God's holiness. And God's holiness is not there to suppress joy, but rather it's there to stimulate it. And the God of 2 Samuel 6 is the same God that we meet in the New Testament. It is the same God that we meet today. God hasn't changed. And I love the way that Psalm 2 pulls it all together when it says in verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That sort of brings it all together, doesn't it? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I think David understood that more than most. Now, in verses 10 to 11, there is blessing. It says here, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Abed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Abed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. After the disruption... After what happened to Uzzah, the ark was temporarily taken to the, ha- to the home of not an Israelite, but a Philistine called Obed-Edom. Perhaps David uh, knew him. Um, he, was, he belonged to the, the, the city of Gath where David hung out as well. So the, the, he would have known this fellow. Uh, now, I don't know how uh, Edom uh, felt about this. But it had a positive outcome in his home. Now, we don't know what form that blessing took in, in, in those three months. But it is enough to realize that the holy God who has his reasons to, to burn with anger against Uzzah chose to bless a foreigner who had no claim on him. And you know what? When you come to think of it, God doesn't have to explain himself to us, does he? He, doesn't, he didn't have to explain himself to David. Doesn't 
have to explain himself to us. There are things that happen that remain a mystery and we just have to accept it as part of God's sovereign and his sovereign will. We can't, you know, I suppose we, we can ask why, Lord, but that doesn't mean that he will give us an explanation. We just have to accept the fact that God behaves in judgment towards others and he blesses others as well. Next heading is that there is also thankfulness, verses 12 to 15. Now King David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Abed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of, of God from the house of Abed-Edom to the, to the city of David with rejoicing. And those, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Now, he doesn't um, tell us that, you know, how the first time there were 30,000 men that were gathered together, the invitation had gone forth to this big event. I'm thinking that this was a, was a smaller, more tentative celebration and party. But nevertheless, a lot of people still turned up. And, and verse 12 is actually the hinge verse in the whole of the chapter. From this moment on, the, the, the direction of the chapter changes. David gets the point that God's intent, his, God's intent is to bless, not destroy his people via the ark. The fact that Obed-Edom was blessed was a good sign that God's anger had dissipated. So arrangements were made to once again bring the ark to Jerusalem. And this time the ark was carried on the shoulders of the Levites, the ones who were appointed by God to carry the ark. The right people, the right way. Now, I don't know how the guys who got the short straw to, to carry the ark would have felt about the task and perhaps being, being nervous and sweaty palms was an understatement. And this is why after the ark was carried for six steps, just read that again, the ark, they lifted the ark and they carried it for six steps. They stopped. They stopped. Those steps would have been trembling steps, tentative, slow, measured. So they stopped and what did they do? They offered a sacrifice. The fact that they were still alive was enough reason to stop and thank God. And as the journey continued, each step after the, the sixth one, I suppose, the, the men's courage uh, grew and increased and, the, and suddenly the, that fearful, um, you know, all the sweat started drying up and, and maybe they, they felt, hey, this is not too bad, we can continue on. And suddenly the cacophony of celebration and the shouts started growing as the, as the ark made its way to Zion. 
How often do we stop like these men and thank our Heavenly Father? Sometimes our steps are tentative. But it's good to stop. Don't just take things for granted. Maybe sometimes it's, it's a good time. It, it's important to just drop whatever you're doing and thank him. The journey can wait. Life will go on. But for now, stop and reflect. God's presence in our midst is a constant opportunity to say thank you. Don't take his presence for granted. For example, today is Father's Day in Australia. And it's a good opportunity for us, especially for us as God's children, to thank our Heavenly Father. Don't take his fatherhood, his fatherhood for granted. And how often do we stop and thank our Heavenly Father not just for who he is, but for his gifts, for his blessing, and thank him on the day like today for our earthly fathers as well and for the fact that many of us have been given the gift of being fathers as well. Let me tell you a story. On, on December 6, 1907, more than 100 years ago, uh, explosions uh, rocked a small community in the, in the U.S. and uh, the state of West Virginia. Uh, and it produced one of the worst disasters in the history of coal mining. Uh, and some 360 miners were killed in this one incident. And it was such a, a horrific tragedy, it left behind 250 widows and 1,000 children without their fathers. Um, and historians maintain that the memorial service of what happened on that day became the, the seedbed from, from which the celebration of Father's Day in the US would eventually grow and Father's Day internationally as well. What happened there was that out of great loss came remembrance and eventually a celebration. And I think that's that's what happened in Israel before. Out of the tragedy of the death of this one person, suddenly all of that just brought a solemnity to the whole occasion and then it became a celebration. Now, I wish that the story could finish there. I wish that we could finish on a good note, on a happy note. But that is not the way that this chapter finishes. In verse 16, we get a taste of it. Because sometimes, in the presence of God, unfortunately, there is also, not everybody comes in the same mood, in the same way. There is also bitterness. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. She despised him in her heart. In an earlier chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, I think it is, uh, David has already been reunited with his first love and his first wife, Michal. She was a princess. She was Saul's daughter and the same one that uh, after the relationship between Saul, the father-in-law, and David 
the son-in-law broke, then Saul decided to give Michal to another man. But now they're reunited again. She is in the, in the, in the palace. She sees through the window how her husband is celebrating and she is not impressed. She's not a happy chappy. When David went home <clears throat> to bless his household, Michal did her best to spoil David's praise and blessing. She was the, the fly in the ointment. She stood in the doorway, you know, I can just imagine just hands on hips, right, with a scowl on her face. And before he could open his mouth, she vents her anger toward him. By her own words, she saw a king, a man of position and power, acting like, oh, David, it's so middle class, your behavior, it is beneath you. You see, Michal, having grown up in royalty, she was more concerned with royal dignity and outward appearances. But David wasn't. He was a man of the people. At its core, you see, when you look at it deeper, Michal and David represented two kingdoms, two very different attitudes. The old regime craves propriety, what is prim and proper. The new celebrates joy. Michal is like someone putting new wine into old wineskins. It's just not going to work. Ultimately, Michal is hurting inside because of everything that has happened to her family. And she can't move on. There is bitterness in her heart. And because of that, she wasn't able to celebrate the joyous occasion. In fact, her bitterness continued and God confirmed the bitterness in her heart by making her sterile. She, was, she wasn't able to, to have children. Somebody who had a bitter heart, you might as well continue being bitter for the rest of your life. You see, I, I, I look at David, and, and David as he's dancing, as he's carrying on, he's happy, he's joyful, and he's dancing with the slave girls. But he, he, as he explains, the, the, the girls, he didn't do it because of them, the girls weren't the, the, the people weren't the audience. David was dancing, he said, before the Lord. God was the audience, so he was dancing before the Lord. Because David saw God as the audience. He didn't see himself so much as Israel's king, but as God's servant. And humility is appropriate for God's servants. This is why he says, I will humiliate myself even more. I'm going to make a fool of myself if that, if that is what it takes. When you come right down to it, our imperfect lives, our imperfect lives might display all these different reactions. 
that we have just discussed. When we come to church, when we serve, when we, when we try to do things for God, we don't always have the right attitude. Sometimes there is celebration. Sometimes there is irreverence. Sometimes there is fear and blessing and thankfulness. And unfortunately, sometimes there's also bitterness and jealousy. Michelle ended with bitterness. Let's not be like her. Yes, there are times to be calm and there are times to be enthusiastic. Allow God's presence to move us, sometimes trembling, sometimes rejoicing, but never, ever cold or indifferent before the presence of the Lord. And may God bless us. Amen.